Hello, everybody, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 1 of Spiritual Psychotherapy. It's been too long, um, and I'm very, very glad and honored to have you guys all back here with me. Um, you know, I was just listening to Alan Watts because I'm at the very tail end of my vacation. Uh, you know, I'm thinking, I'm like walking out of my house, I see the World Series is on. I'm like, there's so many things that we could be doing tonight, but we decided... We all want to come here tonight and and do this. And what is it exactly that we're doing? I ask myself this every time, you know, and uh, listening to Alan Watts, as I always love to do. Um, he's talking about these Zen masters and uh, one of these these most famous Zen masters named Bodhidharma. He uh, had a, a, his main student. Uh, the story goes, he goes up to him and he says, please be my my master, be my teacher. And Bodhidharma says, basically, go away. I have nothing to teach. And so, of course, uh, the student is very persistent. And eventually he cuts off his own arm in order to show his devotion to his master. And he's trying to show, look how dedicated I am to you. And then finally, he says, all right, what is it? You know, what do you want from me? He says, you know, I, I just can't seem to pacify my mind. And then Bodhidharma, the master, says, show me your mind and I'll pacify it for you. And he says, when I look for my mind, I can't find it. And he says, there you go, it's pacified. And that led to some sudden awakening or enlightenment in this individual, Ikkyu, I believe. Um, and to me, this this story, you don't have to take it so literally, whatever, you know. But the funny thing is the comment on that story is you know commenting about Bodhidharma. Why did Bodhidharma come to to uh, to China from India? You know why did this broken toothed old Hindu, as they call him, come to to China? Um, all he ended up having was this uh, was this student with a that became deformed. And you know it, the the point of it is all these Zen masters are people who don't take themselves seriously at all. And when they become quote unquote enlightened. The whole thing that they realize is they have nothing to teach in the first place. And because they have nothing to teach in the first place, it becomes kind of like a joke. And they become very okay with poking fun at each other. And I think that's a very, very beautiful way of, of understanding um, the dynamic between these different Zen masters. Um, so that's how I'd like to begin this class, season two. I'd like to begin with, I have nothing to teach you that you don't already know. Uh, but maybe what we can do together is realize that whatever it is that you and I are looking for, we already have. And it's already here in this moment. Um, and let's see. So as always, we'll dedicate the first half of the class to Zen and to Eastern stuff. Um, and then the second half of the class, Bezrat Hashem, will be doing Zohar. So I'll try to keep my eyes on the clock, you know, more or less um, to that degree. Okay, so here's one quote that I really, really love from uh, the Tan Cheng, uh, one of these Eastern texts. In this moment, there is nothing which comes to be. In this moment, there is nothing which ceases to be. Thus, there is no birth and death to be brought to an end. Wherefore, the absolute tranquility of nirvana is this present moment. Though it is at this moment, there is no limit to this moment. And herein is eternal delight. So that's it. That's all it is. It's just this moment. And any feeling and any discomfort is just part of this moment. 
any pleasure, any pain, any craving, any aversion. It's all just coming up in this moment. Um, and that's something that I want to open you guys to. You know, we spend so much of our daily lives um, indulging in intellectualism, especially, especially being Jewish. This is something that we're so inclined to doing is indulging in intellectualism, running after the next thing. You know, uh, my friend printed out a, a beautiful quote for me. Uh, it says, um, if you're if you're depressed, you're living in the past. If you're anxious, you're living in the future. And if you're at peace, you're living in the moment. And that's kind of something that that we all are hoping to cultivate. And the irony is the very desire to cultivate it brings you out of the moment. So how do you cultivate it without desiring? How do you do it without doing it? How do you just allow for it to happen, as they say? Well, hopefully this class will allow you in some way to to have that process, to allow yourself to open yourself to just sitting here with me. And if you notice awkward moments of silence, they don't have to be awkward. They could be peaceful moments of silence. Okay. Human morality is itself part of the Tao. So this is something that because of all the events that are going on in Israel right now, you know, it's uh, I, I, there's not a moment that goes by, honestly. You know, I've been obsessing uh, as much as anybody else, and I'm sure all of you guys as well, about everything that's going on in Israel. Um, and it brought up some stuff for me because it's like, you know, we teach all these spiritual things and we try to open ourselves to the infinite and to this peaceful way. And then when a war breaks out, it's like, I don't, I feel obligated to get pissed off about this. I feel obligated to continue to read the news, not to just sit in equanimity when my brothers and sisters are murdered by Hamas, when the world has lost its freaking mind and decides to blame Israel for any of what's going on, even though it's very, very obvious to anybody with half a brain that every single drop of blood that has been spilled on the Israeli side and the Palestinian side is solely on the, on the shoulders of Hamas. These are very moral things that I'm trying to, to say. And what is the view of Zen? What is the view of the Eastern philosophers about this? And I've had friends tell me, you know, you know, tone it down a little bit. Don't be so passionate about this stuff in the view of Zen. You know, you're supposed to just be at peace. You're supposed to allow somebody to cut off all your fingers one at a time without, you know, reacting. And, and of course, these are all deep teachings with some kind of, you know, maybe take it with a grain of salt. But the point that I'd like to make is that Zen is not telling you to be a certain way. That's the whole irony of this thing. We're so used to being moralized at, especially in the West especially the way we grew up as Jews, is we're so used to being moralized that as this is a should and this is a shouldn't. And if you're not at peace, that's a shouldn't. And if you're at peace, that's a should. No, no, no. Zen is not saying that. Yeah. And so, ID, what do you think? You think that I, you agree with this? Yeah, I do. But I, I want to bring you something you're going to crack up. Yeah. Part of my library. 35, my, you know, my, my, my guy that got me excited decades ago, this is from 35 years ago, this book, Wayne wow. Dyer. You'll see it when you believe it. Yes. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I love it, man. That's amazing. 
Yeah. You see it to believe it. So it, but it's in, in the moment, there's no limit to the moment. So that means that you should really, like, really, is it the moment of peak experience? I know what's the moment? So the moment is obviously it escapes our words, but it's the experience of this moment that when it's experienced fully is almost like a puzzle piece in the vast panorama of all moments that ever are, ever were, ever will be. And when you are so present in this moment, you see the ramifications that it has towards every moment prior to this one. And the ones that are existing in a possible future or even a likely future. And what you want to talk about, the multi, whatever you want to talk about. But this moment contains everything, just like you can look at a grain of sand and see the implication of the rest of the universe. Because the the molecules that are that are in that grain of sand were formed in the stars. So it's, it's kind of like that kind of vibe. Um, but just finishing off that point about human morality, what the, the point that I'd like to make is... The Tao is something that's flowing through everything all the time. It, it, as we always say, it loves and nourishes all things, but does not lord it over them. It's it's flowing through my anger over Israel. It's flowing when I'm listening to Ben Shapiro, and I'm like, yeah, he's damn right. It's flowing when I get into an argument with somebody about this. It's flowing all the time. So there's not really a should. It's just more about a noticing and a letting be. And then once you allow those waves to, to to crash against the shore, then you finally allow them to relax when whenever they feel like relaxing, but you can't force them to relax either. So that's just a little side note for, for this time that we're living in because it's full of so much tumult. Um, so the as I was saying earlier, this this whole bid for ridding ourselves of the ego, you know, if I come here and I say, I have something to teach you, I have something to impart, to you and something important then i'm deluded and i'm i'm also duping all of you because that's ridiculous there's there's according to this philosophy there's really nothing that i can possibly teach you that's not already immediately apparent to you now wow. already right now it's it's already immediately apparent and if let's say i'm sitting and i want to meditate a lot of people they sit and they meditate and they try to achieve a state of enlightenment or equanimity right well, alan watts quotes some great you know uh some great analogies to this he says we are as a naked man trying to remove his shirt right so a naked man trying to remove his shirt is like what are you trying to get rid of it's already not there the ego that you're trying to get rid of is already a figment of your imagination it's already something of unreality so there's no need to right. get rid of it just allow just be. Um, and then the other the other beautiful analogy uh, <laughs> here is like it's like a man atop an ox riding on top of an ox in search of an ox. He's like, did anybody does anybody know where my eye and it's already there? It's right there. What you're looking for is right there. Right. And it's it's the ability to cultivate that. Um, that is the biggest gift I think you can ever give yourself or other people. Right. So you know, I'm. That's I'm about Mike. Don't, don't refer it. Don't refer it for the sake of of me to the id. Id. <laughs> oh, the id, baby. <laughs> Listen, I attribute everything to you. I was thinking literally before I started this class. I said, "What? 
So what am I doing here? If I have nothing to teach and if I if none of you have anything to learn, then what am I doing? To be honest, I just want to hear ID talk. <laughs> no, no, no. The beauty of everybody here is that we have you to be out to collaborate with and to use you as our platform of incredible wealth of knowledge that you have. And really the truth, it's an incredible experience. I love you. I, it, so that's the point that I love is that if we could have fun together, that's the point. You know, like what, my friend uh, texts me, you want to go play tennis? Yeah, let's go play tennis. Is this to achieve a certain end? Are we going to play tennis in order to, you know, have bragging rights? Well, maybe that's some part of it because we have very competitive friends. I mean, at least I do. By the way, I did win my uh, my my tournament with the amateur tournament with my friends. I'm just putting it out there. We called it the Pinhas Cup this past summer. It was all amateurs, but I'm the best of the amateurs this past summer. But uh, not to have too much ego. I'm just saying we do we do have some competitive. But to, to be honest, the point of the tennis is the tennis. The point of the playing is the playing, right? So that's what we're doing right now. And I hope that this class can feel that way. Like it can feel like a space for all of you here on Tuesday night or, or if you're listening on the podcast to be able to feel just like you have this, this pocket in time where you can have fun and you could just let it all loose and relax and just be with each other. Um, so a man named Ikyu, he has some uh, some words about Satori, Satori being awakening or enlightenment or really that moment of enlightenment. So he says, a mind to search elsewhere for the Buddha is foolishness in the very center of foolishness. So if your mind right now is looking for the Buddha who, you know, you don't have to think of as this separate person. It's more of this consciousness that is awake because Buddha means to be awake. So you, if your mind is searching for that, it's foolishness because it's already awake. And it's in the center of foolishness. For myself of long ago, in nature non-existent, nowhere to go when dead, nothing at all. Because at the end of the day, the thing that sits at the center of all reality, the thing that sits behind all of reality, is that nothingness. It's what we always talk about in the Zohar, the yesh me'ayin. All this yesh that we're talking about is really coming from the ayin, from the nothingness. And that's not something, of course, that I can ever really try to elaborate on because it's just something to try to experience right now. What is it that sits behind your eyes? What What's the color of your head to your eyes? The color inside your head to your eyes. That's kind of the best way of putting it. Um, here's elaborating on that idea of the nothingness or the no one. The Buddha famously says, and I've quoted this so many times, so forgive me if I, if you hear repeat stuff, but I think it's good to remind ourselves of this stuff. Suffering alone exists. None who suffer. The deed there is, but no doer thereof. Nirvana is, but no one seeking it. The path there is, but none who travel it. So it's it's the experience. It's the experience of me speaking these words, and it's just the words being spoken. I don't have to think of it as there's a me and there's the words. It's just, it's just the, the sound of my voice right now. That's the experience that can be had. Um, again, one of my all-time favorite quotes that I have quoted here before, and yet I will quote it again. 
uh, is this one. I showed this to my rabbi in Israel and he looked at me and he's like, where did you find this? And I said, you know what? I just stumbled upon it and I, I got that sense that he enjoyed it as much as I did, which made me very happy because this is, you can imagine somebody, and this is attributed to the Buddha, who knows what that means, because by the way, the Buddha, of course, we could talk about the historical Buddha, as they call him, Shakyamuni, who was uh, Siddhartha Gautama, who lived however many thousands of years ago. But really, the Buddhist tradition, what they do is, whenever another person who is quote-unquote enlightened discovers something, he attributes it to, to the Buddha. Because it's all from the same enlightened consciousness. There is no separate self. So something that I figured out versus historical Buddha, we're both the Buddha at that stage. So it's just, isn't that amazing? Because like a lot of the time it's the opposite. A lot of the time it's like, let me let me claim credit for what I did. But this is like the opposite of that. Buddha said, I consider the positions of kings and rulers as that of dust motes. I observe treasure of gold and gems as so many bricks and pebbles. I look upon the finest silken robes as tattered rags. I see myriad worlds of the universe as small seeds of fruit and the greatest lake in India as a drop of oil on my foot. I perceive the teachings of the world to be the illusion of magicians. I discern the highest conception of emancipation as a golden brocade in a dream and view the holy path of the illuminated one as flowers appearing in one's eyes. I see meditation as a pillar of a mountain, nirvana as a nightmare of daytime. I look upon the judgment of right and wrong as the serpentine dance of a dragon and the rise and fall of beliefs as but traces left by the four seasons. This is a person who is dwelling in multiple layers of reality at once, if you will. He's not tethered to just this immediacy. And ironically, he is, where he's so present in this moment that he's able to see the implication that it has for all other realities. So if there's a drop of oil on his foot, it's the equivalent of a huge lake. You know, you, you do like a thought experiment. You say, what if this whole universe is just inside the fingernail of some giant in some other universe? You know, and, and uh, I've quoted that, you know, that Simpsons thing where in the beginning of the Simpsons, you, you know, it's it, it goes into um, the eye of Homer Simpson or like, sorry, it goes, in, you know, it pans out into the whole universe and you see the whole universe. And then it reveals that that universe is inside Homer's eye, you know, and it's like it's like nested layers of reality. We don't know what the heck is going on here. We don't know why we're here. You know, anyone, anyone who tells you why that is that we're here is basically lying. I don't want to use that word because it's not so nice, but that's kind of the truth. Um, but, yeah, we, we don't know what's going on here. We don't know why did we evolve to be sentient in this nested layer of reality as opposed to another one why aren't electrons sentient in this way maybe they are that's panpsychism it's a whole rabbit hole but the way that the buddha is talking here it feels like that i observe treasure of gold and gems as so many bricks and pebbles 
I look upon the finest silken robes as tattered rags. I see myriad worlds of the universe as small seeds of fruit. So he's comparing all these different worlds to like the seeds inside of a fruit. The greatest lake in India, like a drop of oil on my foot. To me, it's this way of thinking that allows you to not cling. It allows you to, to just be in the flow of this moment instead of, oh, I need to very seriously do this and accomplish that. And you can still do those things without being so serious about it. So, so I think it seems it's a matter of perspective. Um, you know, obviously, like he's shifting his perspective, you know, what what you think is so valuable. But then obviously, you know, gold is only useful if, if you know, you want to spend money. Uh, otherwise, it's just another material. Um, but um, what I'm not understanding here. So it's kind of interesting, right? So he's, he's like anti-materialistic, obviously. Okay. He doesn't want power, you know, rulers. Okay, fine. Then he's like kind of the scale. He's talking about scales, right? You got lakes and drops and you got universes mm -hmm. and seeds. Okay, fine. I get all that. Um, then he's, uh, he's knocking on teachings of the world, which is like, okay, but he's teaching us something right now. So like, that's a little <laughs> curious. Uh, it's an illusion of magicians. Okay. But it's not, I don't know. You know, it's like, I mean, that's how we understand the material reality is by learning. So, I mean, I guess maybe he's saying reality is an illusion because uh, if teaching is an illusion, then reality has to be an illusion. Yeah. Then it's he's like saying, saying sentence is, fa is false. You know, if you say this sentence is false, then it's both true and false at the same time. Everything is, is that kind of a paradox. Right. And then, okay. So then emancipation, I don't know what a brocade is. So I'm a little confused, but it seems like, like uh, yeah, I don't know. Is it jewelry? What is it? Uh, something like that. I'm pretty sure. Where, where okay. is it? Yeah. And then illuminated the holy path as the flowers appearing in one's eyes, which sounds like a pleasant thing, like something yeah. to visualize that's pleasant. Okay. Meditation is a pillar of a mountain. Obviously he likes that. He thinks it's important. And then Nirvana is a nightmare of daytime. I don't understand why it's a nightmare. Yep, that, yep. there you go. That, that part I'm not really why, following. It's uh, yeah. Okay, exactly. Perfect. Yosef Elmale just gave a great point. He said because it's something that you can't achieve. It's something that you can't wrap your head around. It's something you can't grasp. So a big thing in Buddhism is that we need to let go of concepts. So somebody who wants to say this concept, there is a God. That's a concept. What about somebody? There is no God. That's a concept. You you can't you can't wrap your hands around it. When you when you try to grasp what is this nirvana thing, it's it becomes this you know undiscernible thing. It's like a nightmare in the daytime. What the heck does that mean? You would think it's like a dream in in the daytime. No, it's a nightmare in the daytime. It's not something you could even comprehend. But yet it's it's happening. And 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 if you thought Nirvana was this thing that's like pleasant only, that's good, it's like let go of that assumption. Because if I said dream, you might have thought, oh, my dreams will come true. No, no. It's like a nightmare of daytime. Because don't give it this positive spin either. Right. So I think that there's a lot of wisdom in that as well. But you're making fantastic points. And and right. but I think yeah, part yeah, of very good. The but I want to I want to jump in, Mikey. Yeah, Nirvana as a nightmare of a day. So would Nirvana be like, let's say, Maslow's peak experience? Why can't Nirvana be a beautiful thing? Why does he make it like? Why can't you have Nirvana in the daytime? I don't so so you, you it is. I think it is. It can be a beautiful thing, but if you if your ego is insisting 
that it be only a beautiful thing and not include evil and good at the same time or mm -hmm. pleasure and pain at the same time, then you're, you continue to misunderstand. So in order, all of this is like a finger pointing at the moon. All of this is almost like advice for you, not in a moralistic sense, but in a skillful way, teaching yeah. you the same way somebody teaches you how to play guitar, right. the Buddha is teaching you how to be more enlightened. So the way he does that is by confusing your intellect. Right. And by confusing your intellect, your intellect will stop trying as hard. Yes, Joseph. But you want to tell me, Mike, there's almost yeah. like, on this last line, there's almost like there's lev there's almost like levity to it when I read it. I look upon the judgment of right and wrong as a serpent in the dance of a dragon. Yeah. That makes sense. Like you you right you could be right or wrong, and it's like it could be biting you if it's right or wrong. In other words, the way he puts it, he really wants to jam your brain up. Absolutely. And and the biggest thing is he knows that the the human the human's biggest fear is death or of doing wrong or all that stuff. Right. And if he, if he shows you that from this perspective, really death is just like another season, the same way that spring comes and then summer comes and then fall and then winter. So too is your life. And then your death and your life cannot be without your death. So you're just, so let's say I'm born in 1995. I'm just as much the 1995 till 2000 and whatever, as I am the pre-1995 and the post-2000 and whatever, because they need each other. So when you think of it as it's a dance, it's the right and the wrong, it's just arising the same way that waves in the ocean are lapping against the shore and beliefs are coming and going. We take these things so seriously and and we we get obsessed with them and we get lost in them and he's saying stop taking it so seriously but the well, the last point i'll make before i let yosef speak just to close it off is you might say okay therefore let go of all opinions and force yourself to let go of opinions don't have a strong opinion about israel and it's like no he's not saying that either he's saying have your opinions have an opinion about what's right and wrong otherwise you know if you're going to try to deny being a human being like deny basic good and evil, then that's also not being genuine and not uh, that's not allowing the flow of these beliefs. Have your beliefs. Just know that they're they're falling and rising like traces left by the four, four seasons. And I, I, I want to be strong about that because I think people can misunderstand Buddhism as commanding you not to have beliefs, and that's not true. Yes, Yosef. I don't really understand what you're saying about how this is trying to confuse your mind with all these different things. Mm -hmm. So Yosef is asking, why is the, the quote or why is the Buddha here trying to confuse your mind? That's the question. It's a great question. The the thing that that uh, I'm, I'm going to try to repeat people's questions so everyone could hear in the recording because I've had complaints about them in the past. So forgive me if I sound crazy for repeating you to your face. Um, but yeah, it's it's a fantastic question. The way I see it is, Imagine you're trying to get somewhere um, and you hit up against the wall. I always say this, like this is a great analogy. You hit up against the wall and what do you do? You continue to try to use the same tool to get past the wall, but the wall won't budge. You continue using that same tool and that's the intellect. And the only way for you to get past that wall is for you to realize that there hasn't been a wall ever in the first place. There never was a wall. 
And the only way for you to give up that attempt is to give up your intellect. So the, the beauty of this is only once your intellect can give up its very, you know, strong claws on whatever your ego thinks is reality or is you, only then can you really open to the experience that they're all talking about. That makes sense? Yeah, it's kind of similar to like a scrabble where you yeah. the and if I if I ask you now, does it make sense? You should say no. And I'll be like, good. Exactly. There we go. Now you got it. <laughs> Great. No, perfect. You got the right answer. Um, okay. So now, you know, last year I, I began, I think, the first episode with why did I name this spiritual psychotherapy? I was thinking about another uh title called spiritual ophthalmology. Um and and like I always say, this is this is the point of this is not to moralize at you. We get enough of that, I believe. Um, I think really the point of it is to help us be more skillful. The same way, like I said, somebody learning to play an instrument becomes better at that. So too, we can become better at and more skillful at being present and not getting lost and just having more fun and taking things less seriously and more sincerely if you will. Um, and the point of the ophthalmology is it helps you see the world more clearly. Because if you're constantly lost in self versus other and that, that whole experience, you're not actually seeing the world from a divine perspective. And that's fine. You play the game as you play the game for as long as you play the game, but it continues to unfold. I was listening to, to Ram Dass last night and this really, it's just so beautiful the way Ram Dass speaks because I talk about Alan Watts, and he's kind of like this guy that helps me be more skillful in my approach to Zen. And, and Ramdas does that too. But more than any, anything, Ramdas really opens my heart and my emotions. Um, and I highly recommend him. You know, you listen to like Ramdas Chill Step, it'll really put you in a good head. Um, so he talks about, he says, you know, if you're feeling unworthiness, just let it go. Let go of unworthiness. He talks about him and his guru. Ramdas has this guru named Maharaji. Uh, and he sees one day Maharaj, that Ramdas is super, super angry. And Maharaji goes up to Ramdas. He's like, uh, he's like, you're angry. He goes, yeah, I'm angry. He's like, okay, give it up. He's like, what? he's like, it's, it, it's it's that simple. Sometimes just just give it up. And and we, I think really fundamentally, and and you know, the Christians have this idea of original sin. And you know, everyone always yells and screams about how original sin is not the Jewish way. And I agree. I hope that it's not the Jewish way. But the thing is that it's, I think it's giving voice to a very fundamental part of human psychology, which is we feel that we've fallen. We feel that since we ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, right? And we could circle back to what the Buddha said about good and evil, right? Judgments of right and wrong as a serpent in the dance of a dragon. But once we did that, we feel a little bit of a sense of unworthiness. And it's it's a lot to do with how humans evolved. We feel, as Rabbi Soloveitchuk would say, we feel defeated by God. Rabbi Soloveitchuk has this beautiful book, The Lonely Man of Faith, which I'm sure all of you have heard of or read. And there, it's a very beautiful book, very dense, though. Um, Rabbi Soloveitchuk talks about this experience of, of Adam 2, the second Adam, right? Because Adam 1 is like creator Adam, Adam 2 is... This uh, atom of relationship in Bereshit, Perek Aleph versus Perek Bet, respectively. Um, 
And he talks about the lonely, lonely man of faith feeling defeated. And I would read that, you know, as a teenager, I'm like, what is this guy talking about? And I think this is what it's talking about. I think it's this fundamental sense of unworthiness that we all have. So people ask me, they say, Mike, you're taking a Tuesday night to go teach in a shul. How dare you teach Zen? Why are you teaching this Avodazara? And, you know, I always say the same thing. First of all, I don't think it's a religion. Like I say, I think it's ophthalmology. I think it's psychotherapy. I think it's exactly like that. It's not the, the whole point is it's not teaching you doctrines. It's to help you let go of those things. And it's just the same way you would practice an instrument. You practice this stuff. That's all I'm going to say about that. If you want to lynch me or report me to your local Orthodox rabbi, you know what? Go ahead. Send me an email first, michaelfranco95 at gmail.com. Maybe we could work it out if you uh, before you e email anybody else. Um, but I think we all have this fundamental sense of unworthiness. And whether or not we're always conscious of it. Even when I'm meditating, when I'm sure a lot of you, you, you be meditating you say, and you have this moment of real bliss or real mindfulness. And then you say, oh, look, I'm doing it. Wow. Good for you. And then it's like, it's almost like, hey, look, ma, I made it. Hey, look, ma, I'm doing it. And we're always evaluating ourselves. We're always worried about being enough. And that's why I, I always say, I think that the, the concept of God is very important for humans as we evolved. We need the idea of God. And I think there is God, whatever that means, whatever this ineffable experience is, is God. It can't really be put into words, but yes, I think there is God. And we'll talk more about that in the Zohar. But the beauty of the way that the Easterners put it and the way that I think the Zohar is really hinting at is that the real fundamental reality is ecstasy. And you don't see it right now necessarily or feel it right now, but there will be a time when you feel that ecstasy and you see that underneath all of everything, including the pain and suffering and death and disease was ecstasy. And don't kill me for saying this, but there is that experience and people have talked about it and that's called the mystical experience. And the Taoist idea is to try to bring wisdom from that and say, whatever is going on in this moment is part of the Tao. And when, when you only have this idea of God as king, and if you don't have the idea of God as Tao, if you only have God as teacher, God as parent, God as king, you're always open to this sense of unworthiness. And you're always going to be playing this game of ego and humility with God. I always say this, every, almost every podcast, every class, I probably say this, but it's true. We're always going to be repeating ourselves and try. And when something good happens, we're going to be saying, you know, God, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. And when something bad happens, we're going to say, God, how could you let this happen to me? So we're never we're just at peace with God. We're never really just being with God. And I think that's the wisdom of the mystical and the Taoist and the Zohar. And yes, Yosef. You mentioned the word ecstasy. Yes. Ah, okay, good. I should have mentioned I always say also the word ecstasy comes from the word ecstasis outside of space. So it's an experience of, and this is the best that my words can do. It's an experience of this grand harmony of the universe, of everything together, this whole picture being somehow perfect. And my words are obviously not doing justice to it at all. Yeah, but how, how yeah. One person experiences ecstasy. 
It's one person, not the whole world. One person, when they give up their sense of being a separate person, realizes that the whole time they were actually the universe. That's the experience, as the have, mystics would say. They have to realize that, or they just have to be at peace with everything around them. It, it, it's, I think they go hand in hand. I think being at peace with everything around them leads them to this realization that they are part of it all. All right, so so we'll do a couple more of these, and then we'll we'll go into the Zohar because we're running a little bit short on time. There's a two weeks of Israel. Yeah. Israel, Yeshiva, two weeks. Mm -hmm. um, so I just I could not get myself to be upset with anything. Wow. I don't know. I don't know what it was. You got to teach me that, man. I don't know. There's That's beautiful. Like very short. Amazing. I, I was the top felt like I felt great, and nothing, not, nothing that happened bothered me. It was like best, and then, I, then Amazing. <laughs> Unbelievable. Listen, you'd be happy that it happened, and you know, it'll happen again, I'm sure. So, so just this is exactly the mystical idea. And just like we let go of unworthiness, and that's something we could cultivate through practicing it, let go of the unworthiness, notice it, and let it go, like you would anything else. The same way a sound comes and goes. Did you try? To let it go? No, it just came and went. Same thing with your thoughts and emotions. They come and they go. And just, you know, as you practice that skill, it'll keep going away. And same thing with the anger and the sadness. And whether you not like it or not, same thing with happiness and joy and, and uh, equanimity. All these things will come and go. Um, okay, so we'll pause there in terms of the first half of the class. We'll do some Zohar. Yes. not worried that are going to become egotistical. So am I not worried that people will come become egotistical because of they're denying the fact that they're pushing away the fact that they're letting go of the fact that they're unworthy of something. Ah, so so if you're not worthy, then you're not neither. Yes. So as long whatever whatever you think is good, you can you can feel, but you don't have to hold on to that feeling of unworthiness all the time. That's all I'm saying. It's not the only state you need to exist in. There is a beauty in humility and this feeling of service of God. As a human being, you need that. You crave that. I crave that. I can't only exist as, you know, uh, the universe walking around as Michael Franco. I need to worship God. It's a human need. And I think it's evolutionarily built into us to have that. But that's one flavor. But at the same time, I can also have a meditation where I don't need to conceptualize it as God the Father. I can conceptualize it as the Tao. And that's all I'm trying to say. Great. So last year, we left off um, in the Zohar about this beautiful pasuk of These are the generations of heaven and earth um, in their creation. Wow, Baruch Abba, perfect timing for the Zohar. Unbelievable. Sammy at the buzzer. So... Finally, we get to know. Aywa, aywa. So we're saying, So I'll just go over this very briefly because we did it last year. When Evid was inscribed in the word bara, the supernal concealed one inscribed another inscription for its glorious name. So it's it's comparing now uh, the upper worlds and the lower worlds. So this is Ele. So mi bara Ele. Who created these, right? So mi is actually bina. It's one of this, these uh, upper sefirot, the third sefirah, the fe feminine one. Um, and it's creating Ele, Ele being the lower seven of the sefirot. 
Um, and the, and in the same way, the Shekhinah is creating the physical world. The holy blessed name Ma, what was also inscribed out of Bara, it generated Evid, inscribing Ele at one end and Evid at the other. Right, so bear with me here. You have Ele and you have Evid uh, on separate ends, and we're going to see what happens. Holy concealed one, Ele exists, Evid exists. Right, so Ele represents the upper world. And the, the sefirot, seven lower sefirot, and Eved represents the physical reality. As one was completed, so was the other. Amazingly, we're saying now that the spiritual and the physical planes reflect each other, right? So you can't have one without the other, in a way. Uh, in Eved, it engraved He and Ele Yod. So I always say, does your brain exist in the world, or does the, or does the world exist in your brain? Well, you might want to say, like the scientists will say, oh, your brain exists in the world. Well, how would you know? Unless you have a brain in the world, you won't know that your world isn't, that the, that the world, sorry, that the, your brain is in the world. Right? So I can't even say it because it's so confusing. But they both kind of, it's like, as they say, Gigi Muge, they both concomitantly arise. They both come about simultaneously, your brain in the world and the world in your brain. And don't try to play this game of phony humility and saying, no, it's only this and or only that. No, it's both at the same time. In the same way, we're going to see here an idea in the Zohar. As one was completed, so was the other. And Evid engraved He and Ele Yod. So now we're getting Elohi and Abraha. And what is it going to be? Letters were aroused to complete one side and the other. It produced Mem Mem, two Mems moving one to this side, one to that. The holy name was completed, becoming Elohim, and the name Abraham as well. So you didn't get the name Elohim until you get the name Abraham. They happened at the same time. Amazing. As one was completed, so was the other. Then life was generated and the complete name emerged. Unlike before, as is written, these are the generations of heaven and earth. When they were created, right? So when the world was created concomitantly with, with that was this human consciousness. And we pick Abraham because he was like the guy that Hashem loved so much. And we could talk all about the different ways, Hashem, how, how much Hashem loved Abraham. But it's like when he emerged on the scene, it's almost like from his perspective, everything else, including the upper realms of reality, also were created. Good point. So, but for, let's say you're Abraham. If, Great point. If if you are Abraham Avinu and you're in this loving relationship with Hashem, from your perspective, Abraham, you didn't you were unless you were there, you didn't know about these upper realms of reality. But with the second you got to consciousness, that's when you knew about those upper realms, and it's almost like that's when they were created. When God in the form of Elohim revealed exactly to Abraham, exactly. So Hashem didn't reveal himself as Elohim to Abraham until there was an Abraham, right? Yeah. So it's a funny thing. All remained suspended until the name of Abraham was created. Once that name was completed, the holy name was completed, as the verse concludes, on the day that Adonai Elohim made earth and heaven. All right, the pasuk ends, Beyom Adonai Elohim, And it's amazing because now it's almost like Hashem's name is in its full glory. Only once Abraham is on the scene and we have Yod Kevavke and Elohim together because, as the rabbis will say, one represents kind of like this natural uh, God of the whole world, which is Elohim, versus Yod Kevavke being the God of relationship, especially with Abraham and Ben Israel. So now we get to the new material 
that I think is really very, very beautiful. I was reading it today. Rabbi Hayya prostrated himself on the ground, kissing the dust and weeping. So Rabbi Hayya heard this teaching and started hysterical crying. He cried out, dust, dust, how stubborn you are, how impudent. All the lights of the eye decay in you, all pillars of light in the world you consume and pulverize. How insolent you are. Right? He's saying, how dare you, dust, consume all these sadiqim? The holy lamp, right? Who, who is that? That's actually Rabbi Shimon Bari Ohai. He had recently died. So he's complaining. He's saying, how could you decompose a man like that? Uh, the holy lamp who has illumined the world, majestic ruler, prince whose merit sustains the world, decays in you. Oh, Rabbi Shimon, radiance of the lamp, radiance of the world, you decompose in the dust, yet you subsist and guide the world. Right? He's saying, you know what? Actually, you even though you're decomposing, you you do still continue in this world, Rabbi Shimon, through your teachings. And then for a moment, he was shocked and then exclaimed, dust, dust, do not boast. The pillars of the world will not be surrendered to you. Rabbi Shimon has not decayed in you because there's a teaching in the Gemara that the real Sadiqim don't decompose in the ground. And I think that's supposed to be a reflection of really their spiritual teachings. You can fight me on that, but I, that's kind of what I think. Right. But, it, you know, it could be that, that, you know, who am I to, I never dug up a rabbi's grave, so I don't really know. <laughs> but, you know, let's go do a field trip next week. We'll, we'll dig up some graves. We'll see if they decompose or not. But you know what? I, the, yeah. I, are these rabbis his students or are these the people that just like that honored him or whatever? That's actually a fantastic question. Rabbi Haya is his student. Right. Um, and ironically, in the Gemara itself, when it tells a lot of these stories, the stories are actually not about Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai as the center point. But in the Gemara, they're actually about Rabbi Haya as the center point. He's right. this holy guy. But the Zohar flips it and it says, no, actually the holiest guy who, about whom all these stories is really about is Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. And to be honest, it doesn't really matter historically the way that it happened, but it's the deeper teaching. So we're going to see now Rabbi Haya, the way that he reacts. So still weeping, Rabbi Haya rose and walked on together with Rabbi Yoseh. From that day on, he fasted 40 days to envision Rabbi Shimon. All right, so we have these, these ideas of fasting to see a big rabbi. Um, we see also in Kohelet Rabarish, Lakish um, was longing to see Rabbi Haya Rabbah in a dream. So now Rabbi Haya is the one that, that someone wants to see, as opposed to in the Zohar here, Rabbi Haya is the one who wants to see Rabbi Shimon, Bar Yochai. So Rish Lakish wants to see Rabbi Haya. He was told, you are not worthy. Why? He asked, didn't I study Torah as he did? They replied, you did not teach Torah as he did. And not only that, he exiled himself, wandering for the sake of Torah. He said to them, didn't I exile myself? Like wandering for the sake of Torah? And they said, you exiled yourself to learn. He exiled himself to teach. He sat three, for 300 fasts, and then he, Rabbi Haya, appeared to him in a dream saying, if someone is a nobody, but speaks of them of himself as though he were somebody, better for him if he had never been created. Right? So be careful about how much you think of yourself as a somebody. All right. So it's a lot, a lot of talk about ego, by the way. So this is all in the dream of Resh Lakish about and about Rabbi Hayya. Rabbi Aseh fasted for 30 days to envision Rabbi Hayya Rabba, but did not see him. He was told, you are not worthy. He said to them, show him to me and let happen what happens. He saw his steps, the steps of Rabbi Hayya's thrones in heaven, throne in heaven. All right, so he sees just the steps of the throne of Rabbi Hayya, and his eyes grew dim, 
Um, and then, right, meaning he he became a little bit blinded from the, the brilliance. We're going to see more of that soon and, and the deeper meaning of that, right? Similar to Moshe Rabbeinu, right? Coming down from Har Sinai. And he was glowing so much radiantly that people had to wear, that he had to wear a mask when, when he would be before the people. And the Zohar Rabbi Hayah is no longer the saint whose appearance is sought by fasting, but rather the devotee who seeks, who seeks, right? So we, like we said, Rabbi Shimon replaced him here. The comparison to, to Moshe Rabbeinu, Shalom HaMelech did the same thing so that God would give him a spirit of wisdom and understanding, right? So uh, this idea of fasting for 40 days, we have a bunch of that. Um, and we have in Baba Metziada, Yosef is said to have fasted for 40 fasts. So bottom line, we have a lot of examples of this. Uh, here's a very interesting idea, though. Um, Rabbi Haviva said, Rabbi Haviva, son of Sumaki, told me, I saw one of the rabbis whom Eliyahu used to frequent. In the morning, his eyes were lovely, but in the evening, they looked as if they had been burnt by fire. I asked him, what is this? He told me that he had asked Eliyahu, show me the departed rabbis as they ascend to the heavenly academy. Eliyahu replied, you can gaze at all of them except for the carriage of Rabbi Hayah, at which you cannot gaze. What is their sign? How can I distinguish between them? All are accompanied by angels as they ascend and descend, except for Rabbi Hayah's carriage, which ascends and descends on its own. Unable to restrain myself, I gazed at it. Two sparks of fire shot forth and struck me, blinding me. The next day I went and I prostrated myself upon Rabbi Hayah's grave, crying, Your Mishnah is my Mishnah, and I was healed. On the special relationship between Rabbi Hayah and Rabbi Shimon, we can see more in the Zohar. But bottom line, there's this idea of getting burned by this fire of vision and not being worthy, and then this humility of admitting a certain thing and then getting healed of that blindness. So... There's this. There's a lot of these these supernal visions, and I I won't proclaim to know what they really mean, but I think that as we keep reading, we're going to see different layers to this, and it's going to be very very interesting, especially the way that this this closes. We might have to wait a week or two to fully finish it, but I think it's really interesting. Um, so let's keep reading on before we interpret too much of this. Uh, so still weeping, he he rose, he walked on with Rabbi Yosef, fasted forty days to vision and Rabbi Shimon. He was told, you are not entitled to see him. He wept and fasted another 40 days. In a vision, he was shown Rabbi Shimon. Finally, now he sees a vision of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and his son, right? The son of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai named Rabbi Al-Azhar, studying the word that Rabbi Yosef had spoken. Right? So isn't that amazing? They're studying the word of Rabbi Yosef, which was, we, we did it last year. It's also talking about this pasuk of Ele toldot am, and it's about the importance of Abraham in that word am, because they're anagrams of each other. You just jumble the letters. So Rabbi Shimon is learning the words of Rabbi Yoseh. Right? Thousands of people are listening in this heavenly realm to them learning this, this idea about Abraham Avinu. Meanwhile, he noticed many huge celestial wings, which Rabbi Shimon and his son Rabbi Al-Azad mounted, and they soared to the Academy of Heaven. So he's having quite a vision right now. He's seeing them going on wings to the Academy of Heaven. All those wings waited for them. He saw them returning. Their splendor renewed, and they shone more brilliantly than the dazzle of the sun, right? Similar to Moshe Rabbeinu, when they came back down from that heavenly academy, they were glowing like the sun. Rabbi Shimon opened, right? And he said, Let the Bihiyah enter and see how the, the how the blessed Holy One intends to rejuvenate the faces of the righteous in the time to come. He says, I want Rabbi Hayah to see 
the way that Hashem rejuvenates our faces in the future. Happy is one who enters here without shame. Happy is one who stands in that world as a sturdy pillar, right? So somebody who is able to stay on earth um, and continue their work as a sturdy pillar is going to be very, very happy and very, very fortunate, especially after having witnessed this level of something. And we're going to see that in a second or maybe next week, what this implies about being on earth, but also having such supernal visions um, and how to balance these things. And it's going to be very, very interesting about a bihaya. Um, and this is honestly a very, very riveting story. We'll read it a little bit more, a few more minutes, because we start a little bit late. Rabbi Hayya saw himself entering. Right. So now imagine you're Rabbi Hayya, and you're having this vision, and you're watching yourself in this academy on high, with Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and his son Rabbi Al-Azhar, and you're imagining yourself walking into their academy. Put yourself in those shoes. Rabbi Al-Azhar rose together with the other pillars sitting there. Embarrassed, he drew back, then entered and sat at the feet of Rabbi Shimon. Right, so Rabbi Haya now is sitting at the feet of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. A voice issued, "Lower your eyes, do not raise your head, do not gaze." All right, so don't look up. Similar to Eshet Lot. Right, lowering his eyes, he saw a light shining in the distance. The voice returned. Oh, high, hidden, concealed ones, open-eyed, roaming the entire world, gaze and see. Oh, low, sleeping ones, closed-eyed, awake. Right, he's saying, wake up. And he's saying to the, to the angels, go and look. Or maybe the souls of the righteous. Everyone go and look. Who among you awaits each day the light that shines when the king visits the dough and is glorified Declared king of all kings of the world. All right, so it's saying, who of you, among you is awaiting the day when Hashem is going to visit this little Dawadir, as they say in my cousin Vinny, right? This dough is actually the dough of love referenced in Mishle, talking about the Shekhinah and the Zohar. Whenever it talks about this little baby deer, it's really talking about the Shekhinah. All right, so who is not awaiting for this? Who is not waiting for Hashem to be unified with the Shekhinah? What's going on here? If you look in Masichet Shabbat, Rava said, when a human is led in for judgment, right, into Shemaim, he is asked, right, what are the questions that you get asked? We all know the first three. Were you honest in your business dealings? The other one, did you set aside time for Torah? Did you generate new life? Did you wait salvation? Did you engage in the dialectics of wisdom? Did you understand one thing from another? So he adds, you know, more than we're used to. Um, but this is this is the, the the rhetorical question that's being asked here um, by this almost like a batko, as Rabbi Haya is standing or is is kneeling at the feet of Rabbi Shimon in heaven. All right, so he's hearing this voice saying, "Who is not waiting for this day of glory?" Right, and you could think of this almost like the ego yearning for this enlightenment, which we said earlier is like a little bit ironic. But to be honest, it's it's something we can't ignore. We all have these feelings of yearning. And what do you do when as a human being, you feel this unworthiness? You feel defeated by God. You feel the need to be close to God because there is a God. From your ego's perspective, 100%, there is a God that is not me. So what do you do? Well, let's learn from Rabbi Hiyah. Meanwhile, he noticed many of the companions surrounding him, all those erect pillars, and he saw them being raised to the Academy of Heaven, some ascending, some descending, like Malachim going up and down. Above them all, he saw the master of wings, right? The head angel could be Metatron, 
approaching. When he arrived, he solemnly swore that he had heard from behind the curtain, right? So he heard this secret thing, the curtain concealing God from the world, right? So the, the head angel is now saying, I heard something pretty amazing. What did he hear? What did this head angel hear? And he's revealing to the Bihya that the king, Hashem, remembers the doe, the deer, the Shekhinah, who lies in the dust, and, or B'nai Israel as well, and visits her every day. Hashem cares very much about that, that being. At that moment, he kicks the 390 firmaments, right? Because the gematria of Shamaim is 390. So they say, Hashem is kicking the whole Shamaim, which all tremble and quake before him. He sheds tears over this. And those tears of bubbling fire fall into the vast ocean. From those tears, the prince of the ocean, who can be thought of as Leviathan, as according to this interpretation, emerges by them. He is sustained, right? So the, the, the Leviathan drinks the tears of God. What is this? Such a deep symbolic thing. And we'll see what else happens now. And he hallows the name of the holy king, right? So as opposed to the Goim, who thought that Leviathan was a god in of himself, Leviathan worships our god. Agreeing to swallow up all the waters, it's a polemic against Leviathan, to swallow up all the waters of creation and absorb them when all the nations gather against the holy people so that the waters will dry up and they will pass through the dry land. So Leviathan is, has this, this mission that if everyone is assaulting B'nai Israel, he's going to soak up all and drink up all the waters of the oceans that we could cross again through the Yams, the Yamsuf kind of thing, right? Cross through the dry land um, and go back to our salvation. Um, and there's a lot of references here to the Tanakh as well. Not going to get too much into it. We'll read a little bit more. Meanwhile, he heard a voice proclaiming, Make way, make way, for King Mashiach is coming to the Academy of Rabbi Shimon. For all the righteous present, there are heads of academies, and those academies are designated there. And all members of each academy is sent from the academy here to the Academy of Heaven. The Mashiach visits all those academies, uh, setting his seal on the Torah, issuing from the mouths of the rabbis. All right, so it's saying the Mashiach is, is visiting all these heavenly academies, at that moment, the Mashiach arrived, adorned by the heads of the academies of celestial crowns. At that moment, all the companions rose, and Abi Shimon rose, his light radiating to the vault of heaven. Right, so we have these unbelievable figures now. We have the Batko, we have the Mashiach has now arrived, and we have Abi Shimon Bar Yochai with Rabbi Hayah at his feet. And we'll end with this. Uh, I'll read that we're almost done with a couple more minutes. He said to him, Happy are you, Rabbi, for your Torah ascensed in 370 lights, or some people say 390 lights, right? So your Torah goes up into all the Sefirot, because you could think of 300, as they say, is the first three Sefirot, 70 being the bottom seven, or if it's 390, it's just a reference to Shamaim. And we'll cover this again next week. Each and every light ref refracting into 613 senses. So these, these fractals, every mitzvah is like a fractal. Every mitzvah is an emanation of the Shamaim, sending and bathing in the rivers of pure balsam of Besamim. The Blessed Holy One sets his seal on the Torah of your academy and the, of the academy of Hizkiyah ben Yehuda and of the academy of Ahiyah Shiloni. Right? So it's the, the Mashiach is now making these claims. Your academy has the divine seal. And so does Hezkiyahus, who is a righteous king. And so does Ahiyah Shiloni. And by the way, Ahiyah Shiloni is always referenced as being uh, in different places, the teacher of Eliyahu, teacher of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. It's a lot of different things. This guy, Ahiyah Shiloni, the one to tell Yerav Am ben Nevat that his kingdom would be split, the northern kingdom, very holy man. 
I have not come to set my seal on what issues from your academy. Rather, the master of wings has entered here, right? The head, the head malach is here. For I know he enters no academy but yours. Your academy is the holiest one. Because this is the only one where the head malach is. And we're almost done. Rabbi Shimon told him the oath that the master of wings had sworn. The Mashiach began trembling and cried aloud, right? So he heard now that Hashem swears, I will not forsake that little deer. I will not forsake the Shekhinah. This is how we feel when our ego feels defeated by God. We, we need to hear that Hashem still cares about us. The Mashiach began trembling and cried aloud. The Mashiach himself is crying when he hears this. Think about what this implies on a psychological level for you. The Mashiach inside of your ego is crying tears of joy when it hears that Hashem cares about you. Separate you. You to be Hayah. You, Sammy Mamie. Even you. <laughs> right? So the Mashiach is crying when he hears this. The heavens trembled. The vast ocean trembled. Leviathan trembled. trembled. The world verged on overturning. At that moment, he noticed Rabbi Hayah sitting at the feet of Rabbi Shimon. I love this. Now we pan back out to Rabbi Hayah. And the Mashiach says, Who placed the human here, clothed in the garb of that world? Yani. Why is there still a human of flesh and blood in the garb of that world? I mean, why does he still have a body? The Bishamon answered, right, and similar to the Midrashim about Moshe Rabbeinu going up to Shemaim, where the Malachim is saying, what are you doing? Yelid Isha is going to be here? Or the son of a woman is going to be here? The Bishamon answered, this is Rabbi Haya, radiance of the lamp of Torah. Right, He's my student, he's saying. Because if he's the lamp of Torah, he's the radiance of that. The Mashiach said, let him be gathered in together with his sons that they become members of your academy. Yeah, and he let them die, him and his sons, that they could come and be part of this holy heavenly academy. This is the feeling of the ego when it's in this state of bliss, in spiritual bliss. You just want to die into God. It's not suicide. It's ego suicide. You want to continue in this state of total peace and equanimity with God forever and ever and ever. But what happens? The Bishamon said, let him be granted time. Give him a little bit more time. Let it be, yeah, remain alive on earth a while longer. Where, and we see other places, Rabbi Shimon interceding with God to spare the life of Rabbi Yitzhak when it was decreed that he was to die. And this theme of a holy person remaining on earth appears in a contemporary hagiography called Santa Oria, and it's, it's all over the place. But this beautiful idea of no matter how much you want to be close with God, you can still do it as a human being of flesh and blood. You don't have to die. Time was granted to him. He emerged trembling, his eyes streaming with tears, quivering. He cried, happy is the share of the righteous in that world. Happy is the share of the son of Yohai who has attained this. Of him it is written, so that I may endow those who love me with substance and fill their treasuries. So Rabbi Haya had such a beautiful vision. He learned now, even after his rabbi died, even after he had this unbelievable vision, and they're asking for him and his sons to join them. He realizes, my teacher said it's okay for me to continue as a human being on this earth. It's okay to be flesh and blood until I actually die and continue this human experiment that I am until the day of death and to realize that I am where I need to be. And the day will come when I'll be that bliss 
and that equanimity and that peace. But at the same time, oh my God, what an unbelievable thing awaits us. Happy is the share of, of uh, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai who has attained this. All right, so we'll stop there. Baruch Amen. Any questions or comments, please feel free to ask me. Really? Great job. Great way to start off the season. I can't wait to see you all next week. I really, really hope to see you. Okay. Whenever you can make it, it's it's an honor and it's a privilege. Thanks, Thank Mikey. everybody. Love you all. Thanks, Mikey. Have Thank you, week. Michael. Thanks for doing it again. Thank you. Really? I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. <laughs> I'll see you, Mikey. Take care. Great week, honey. Thank you.